Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that a new study just found that a compound in strawberries might prevent age-associated neurodegenerative disease. Now, if you've read Headstrong, you know that, well, about half of us under age 40 have early-onset mitochondrial dysfunction. That's kind of a bad thing. And this new study says that that compound from strawberries called fisetin could be particularly helpful. Uh, However, I got to say, you're going to have to eat an awful lot of strawberries to get any benefit. It's kind of like resveratrol and red wine. I'd like to tell you red wine is super healthy because of resveratrol. It's just you need to drink like a truckload of wine to get as much as you get in a little capsule, which is one of the reasons I like supplements. Uh, That said, could be kind of cool, right? Uh, In this study, it was at the Salk Institute in the Neurobiology Lab, a place where I've actually been, a pretty amazing place. And they found that mice that got large doses of the stuff had significantly reduced cognitive decline and inflammation from aging. Given that I'm looking to live to at least 180, and I hope you'll join me in that quest, uh, and I also plan to, well, die trying if necessary, (laughs) Um, maybe this is something you want to start uh, thinking about. Eat a few strawberries and maybe take some supplements, uh, things like that. All right. Today's episode is going to be fantastic fun because if you're watching on a video, if you want to see this one on video, go to bulletproof.com slash YouTube to find the channel. Uh, I'm recording it live in the headquarters of Tom's Shoes with none other than Blake Mykoski, who is the founder and chief shoe giver of Tom's, a multiple successful entrepreneur, and a guy who just wrote a book called Start Something That Matters, talking about social entrepreneurship and things like that. So Blake, welcome to Bulletproof Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for coming to our headquarters here in LA. Now, we got to know each other a little bit before this uh, in, in other meetings, and usually I interview maverick scientists uh, people who are doing uh, sort of crazy world-changing things. And I wanted to interview you because you're not only a, a shockingly successful entrepreneur, you're actually a good human being. That's nice. Thank you. <laughs> and I want to talk to you, not necessarily, you know, how can you start a company and all that sort of stuff, although we'll probably talk a little bit about that. Uh, I, some portion of people listening are interested in that, but a lot of them are like, you know, how do I, how do I perform better? And you're a guy who's lived a, a pretty amazing life and you've got a lot of mindfulness built into both your business and just your own personal life. So I want to go deep in that direction if you're sure. cool with it. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I uh, mean, it's definitely, uh, I would say a passion of mine that has developed over the years as things have happened in my life, like becoming a new dad or getting married or um, dealing even with the success of Tom's has led me to a place to want to be more mindful. Uh, you just mentioned being a new dad. And as we're recording this, tomorrow's the big day. <laughs> yeah, so we, I know it's crazy. This is literally the last thing on my calendar before I go home to get ready with my wife who will be giving birth to our second child tomorrow. We're having a, a baby girl. Um, and one other cool fact of the day is that we will be having our, our first daughter tomorrow, and tomorrow is also the International Day of the Girl. Oh, wow. So, so I thought that was an, like, if you're going to be born on a day as a girl, why not be born on the International Day of the Girl, which our daughter Charlie will be born on? So, uh, so yeah, I was funny. Heather, my wife, was asking me about my schedule today in case she went into labor early. Right. And I was like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And I really hope I don't have to cancel on Dave because I've been looking forward to sitting down together since we met several months ago. So um, unless we get a call here in the next hour and a half, <laughs> I think we're good. 
I was literally figuring we're maybe 50-50, and I couldn't believe you that you said, all right, let's meet the day before. So thank you. It's great. It's great. Now, I, I went through kind of your, your track record here, and you've started like four companies before this, and one of them stood out. You started a student laundry company. I, my, one of my first business plan things I worked on at Wharton was around doing a laundry service because it's such an annoyance for people. So you actually did that and like made a million-dollar company out of that. You were how old when you did that? I was 19 when I did that. That was my first business. And, and the funny thing about that is, and I think as many entrepreneurs say, that their idea actually comes out of necessity right. um, versus, versus anything else. And I had um, been playing college tennis at SMU and broke my uh, leg and had it was in this big old like a body cast. And I couldn't carry my laundry down to the facility. <laughs> and so I had a necessity. I literally needed someone to come pick up and deliver my laundry. And back then, I, some people won't know what this is, but there's this thing called the Yellow Pages. Right. And, and, it's uh, like, it's before, analog Google or something? Yeah, it's like, it's like a yellow Google, <laughs> but printed on paper uh, with only one you know, trillionth the information. Um, but yeah, so I looked in the Yellow Pages. There was no one that would do it. And so that led to, gosh, this seems like a good idea for a business. And that, yeah, the, it's called Easy Laundry. That was my first, my first uh, business. So you sold it for a million bucks or something before you were, what, early 20s? Yeah, I was 22 Yeah, right. when I... What did it do to your head when you made a million bucks at 22? You know, I think, I think it was... Um, it's interesting. I think you would appreciate this because you have so many passions and interest in the kind of business entrepreneur kind of personal growth space is I was already on to the next thing as I was trying to, you know, sell that business. Right. And so as that was happening, it gave me definitely some financial freedom but I was already so deep into investing into my next thing that it wasn't like it changed my lifestyle at all. It was, it, you know, I was, I was still living in a small apartment, you know, still, you know, driving kind of a probably just an okay car, you know, you know, watching my spending um, and really just passionate about the next business idea I had. And I think that that just goes to kind of the way I think about business is more about I love inventing things that don't exist in culture or solving problems that I want to solve for myself or for yeah. others. And so it was more of just a, a way to have some capital to go do that more. That's pretty unusual, though. I mean, I know a lot of people who made money when they were in their early 20s who pretty much blow it all, right? So, I mean, did your parents raise you with some weird attitude towards money? Uh, this is like deep psychology. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone I, has I'm issues about to, money. <laughs> I, everyone does, and I think you can have issues about you know, not having enough money or then having, you know, too much money. And, and, and unfortunately there's, there's a lot of pain and suffering that comes from people who are successful yeah. as I'm sure you've met. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think it's money has never been, um, like overly important or idolized in my life and may, largely maybe because I grew up in an upper middle class family that had enough money. You know, it wasn't like we were seen as rich, but we also were seen as, you know, very fortunate, very well off. We were very grateful. My dad is a doctor. My mom is an author. Okay. So it was, it, I think it was just like, um, it was a, an environment that it didn't um, place such an importance. One of my favorite entrepreneurs, uh, Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, uh, is, uh, you know, she, I think says the best thing about money. She said, Blake, uh, money is fun to make, Money should be fun to spend, and money should be fun to give away. And you yeah. should have equal fun during all three. 
Yeah. And, and that's kind of my philosophy about money. Well, your parents are, someone did something right by you because the vast majority of people, including me when I was that age, have this subconscious fear around money, right? It's like fear of not having enough and then fear of losing it and then fear of making the wrong decision with it. And so like as, as the, if you don't have money, you're fearful. If you have money, you're fearful. And then it drives not giving. It drives uh, people to uh, just make fearful decisions that actually lose them their money. And this happened to me. I, I made 6 million bucks when I was 26. I lost it when I was 28. Wow. All I had to do is quit my job and keep my $6 million. <laughs> but I'm like, no, I could make more. I'll be happy when I have $10 million. And I made yeah. all these terrible decisions in retrospect. And now I, I recognize I was running kind of unconscious programming around you know not being worthy and all sorts of weird stuff. But you, okay, so you made your million bucks, right? It, yeah. And then and you just never had the fear about money thing. You looked at it as a, as a tool. Well, and it was something that in my entrepreneurial life I've made and lost several times. So it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, while I made some money on that business, I lost money on the next business. Then I made some money on the next business. And, and it's been this kind of, you know, um, I feel like it's just kind of part of the entrepreneurial journey. So yeah. it's not surprising to me to hear that you made money and then you lost it and then you've made more money because entrepreneurs – I think are more interested in creating things and, and building things than they are about accumulating wealth. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so sometimes that wealth that they cr- accumulate ends up slipping through their hands. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, it, at the end of the day, it comes back to like these, these patterns that we develop when we were very young. And, and, you know, you could say that they're neurologically hardwired into our brain and, 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 and I, I think that's why so many people have these patterns and these certain um, kind of reactions, both good and bad, to money or being afraid of losing it because they witness their parents um, right. dealing with money in that way. And, and like I said, I was very fortunate in that, you know, um, we always had sufficient means to, you know, allow us to do not just the basic things in life, but take a family vacation every summer and, and, and give each other nice gifts in the holidays. And my parents were very charitable. They were always giving money to different causes or the church or, you know, helping pay for people to go on mission trips or whatever it was. So I think I just grew up with a, thankfully, a really great role model in my mom and my dad at how they engaged uh, with money. What happened when you failed at your second company? How did you deal with failure? Mm, Well, I mean, I think the hardest thing about failing in a business is when you actually have to stop, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, cause you could still think this is a good idea and, and this could be successful. I just had a little more capital, I had a little more time, but when you literally run out of money and like, you can't get any more, uh, especially if you're raising, you're oh, raising yeah. investor money, uh, that's like a really frustrating thing. It's like the game's over, the clock's done. And like, you don't get to keep playing. Um, so I, you know, I had, uh, I, I, I tried to start a television network when I was 22. It was an all-reality cable channel. The idea came to me after I was on uh, The Amazing Race reality show with my sister Paige. And and you know we raised some money um you know from venture you know funds and some private equity and uh and we proceeded to spend the money in trying to build this network and ultimately realized we just couldn't get it done there was too much competition fox just launched their own reality channel etc and we had to let go about 20 25 people that had been working on this project with us for almost 2 years and the hardest part about the failing was 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 not just that we didn't get to keep 
kind of pursuing this vision that we had, but really was, is like, I didn't get to show up and like work and experience life with these amazing people that I become really good friends with. Like we all had to go find jobs or we had to go do something else. And that, that kind of those relationships that had to be severed just because we didn't have a company to go to was really hard. And then trying to keep those relationships was next to impossible because, you know, had a programming, she had kids in high school and she needed to go find a job at a traditional network. And, you know, and, and the head of finance had to go get a job, you know, it's like, right. so it just so much of our relationships in life are, are happening because of the time that we spend with people largely because of the work that we do. And so when you don't get to do the work that you were doing, that means you also don't get to have the relationships that you had. And I'm a very relational person. And so that was, I think what was made it really difficult was I, didn't get to have the time with these people that I had enjoyed so much. So did you have like the voice in your head that like, Oh, I, I screwed up. I, I failed. I didn't do this right. I mean, it was, was there some negative self-talk or are you just kind of chill that way? It was more just by, I miss my friends. I, you know, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I think it was for me, the biggest lesson in this was, is we had, and to this day, I still believe this kind of hypothesis around this. We had a great idea in that, um, there was, a ton of people that were at this time, 2000, you know, this is 2003, were just obsessed with reality television. So we had a lot of people that were really interested in the content that we were going to be putting out. Uh, and they were really obsessed with the reality stars of like the survivors and the amazing race and the big brothers. And we were getting all those people who wanted to be part of our network because after they were on the show, they had nothing to do and they wanted to keep their 15 minutes of fame going. So we had great content. We had great kind of celebrity assets. Um, advertisers liked this content because it reached a very coveted demographic, this 18 to 34-year-old that they're all trying to reach. Every part of the business equation made sense, except the cable operators did not need new channels. <laughs> right. You know, there's 500 of them, right? Like, why would they pay me? They're not going to get any more subscribers if they add this channel. And so there was a single... Um, group of, of companies, about six of them in our country, that controlled the fate of this great idea ever reaching its end mm-hmm. consumer. And so I learned a big lesson in that like, I was very frustrated myself that I didn't have the foresight to see that before I raised all this money and hired all these people. Because if so, I could have just gone to them first and seen if there was any chance in the world that we were going to get on their networks. And if not, then I wouldn't have spent two years of my life trying to do so because I kind of, I probably could have figured that out pretty quickly. You had the wrong customer identified. You're looking at the viewers, not the people would pay. Exactly. And so, and so that was the hardest part was just feeling like I really had missed something. Um, and that did create some negative self-talk. Um, but I think the larger part of the, the thing that made it so hard was just, I missed the people that I had worked with and I really felt like we were on a, a fun mission together that we weren't able to continue working on. I've felt that even just when, you know, when you leave a company after you've been there for a few years, uh, you form all these relationships. And I think a lot of people, when they, they change jobs, like they kind of feel like they lost their, their social support net because so many of us, our friends are our coworkers, right? I mean, today, um, a, a gentleman named Seth, who's worked in sales with me since 2009, 10, was his last day. Wow. And we spent a few minutes together and gave a hug and both shed a few tears. And, you know, as a founder of a company that has about 500 employees and now we're 11 years old, I've 
uh, you know, had that experience many, yeah. many times now. And it's, I think it's kind of the hardest part about, uh, about being a founder and having a company that has had some success is that, you know, it's not forever. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he served Tom's for a really long time and, and he did great work when he was here and it was time for a new chapter in his career and his life. And he moved on and, and the number of those conversations I've had over the years, especially from the early employees that were in the apartment with me or, right. you know, in the old warehouse in, in Santa Monica, I mean, you know, they're like family. And so when they go off to do something else, uh, even though there's always, you know, good reasons and, and there's hugs and there's tears and it's still a little piece of me dies every time someone leaves because I'm still here grinding and building the vision and working harder than ever to make Tom's uh, relevant in our culture and to be having impact every day. So when someone chooses to do something else, it's always hard. Yeah. It, it, for me, at least it, it kind of triggers a little bit of like, like they're abandoning me, even though I know that's not real, but you get that little twinge, but then you also like, well, okay, I have a great opportunity. It was the right thing. Uh, and so it, it always kind of feels good though, when someone leaves, like I had a employee leave and start a company, I ended up like investing in our company. Cause I'm like, she was, she was fantastic. I was sad she left, but like all the reasons were right. Um, and, uh, Carissa, you know, I'm talking about you. Uh, she started a makeup company, actually one that, that's, that will say oh, copy. Thrive, right? Yeah, there yeah, you yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to, oh, do you know her? I do. Yeah. Oh, excellent. I was going to say she, she definitely borrowed your, your give idea because she, she gives, uh, uh, makeup to women who are recovering from cancer or from chemotherapy every time you buy makeup. But it's it's very much the idea that you pioneered around this giving company and she's doing fantastically well. So I'm like, how can you be, on one hand you can be sad, on the other hand you can be like, wow, this is amazing, like, like someone left. And that, that feels good. Um, what about though, uh, you know, what, what goes through your head when, when you realize, well, here's someone who, who worked out, but they're not working out anymore? Mm. I mean, that's also something that as a founder you deal with a lot, yeah. especially in, in, you know, kind of the, I would say, you know, we're 11 years old now in the middle years, so to speak, like kind of once you've kind of proven your business model and it's working and you're having high growth, um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just part of building a business. And I think the best advice that I ever received from mentors and people who have been down this path before me is you know, to, you know, to act quickly, uh, and, 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 and to act, you know, really transparently, you know, just, just be really honest with the person and with yourself and not try to like squeeze them into a new role or redefine the role. Cause ultimately that is limiting them and holding them back and the business. And it's not fair to the other employees that are still, you know, surrounded by that person. So, you know, um, it's just part of, it's just part of what we do, you know, and you got to have those conversations. And I think this, the quicker you have those conversations and the more just open and honest you are about why you're having the conversation. Um, it's kind of like pulling off a bandaid. It hurts, but if you do it quickly, the, you know, the pain goes by pretty quick. I, I think there's a lot of personal growth that happens being an entrepreneur because it, it forces you to be a little bit more conscious with your relationships, right? Be, because you're like, well, you want to help someone <laughs> at the same time. Like if it, if it's not reciprocal for whatever the reason is, uh, at a certain point, just to be able to, uh, practice that skill of saying, all right, like let's both find what's right for us is, uh, that was, that's been a difficult thing for me as an entrepreneur as well. But it, it sounds like you've navigated these waters remarkably well. And I, I'm still digging. And, and I think people listening are interested in that too. Like, like you've, You've now done this four times, uh, and you know you've you've created this new business model of, of giving. 
Um, but what, what have been the sticking points for you? Like, what are the hard things that you had to work on yourself in order to get your companies to do these things? Man, I mean, several things. I mean, on a very tactical level, just in Tom's shoes, the hardest part was making the shoes. Like, I just <laughs> never was a shoemaker. Um, I mainly hired people that came from, you know, kind of um, the passion of giving and not right. the you know, the, 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 the drive of excellent shoemaking. Um, and so production for at least the first five or six years was very hard to get right and very costly when you get it wrong Oh yeah, and you have recalls or you have, you know, complaints and you have, you know, I mean, so, so it just is a very tactical level. The hardest thing about growing Tom's was never selling the shoes uh, it was actually in making the shoes and then also really making sure that we were giving the shoes in a really sustainable, responsible way because no one in the history of the world had ever given away as many shoes as we were giving and still are giving away. And we've given 85 million pairs of shoes wow. away. <laughs> so there's just no organization set up to like tell us like this is the way to give in a responsible way that doesn't disrupt local markets or doesn't undercut, you know, the local, you know, shoe seller. You know, like right. these are the ways that you look to um, creating aid but not need and dependency. I mean, there's all these really deep kind of thinking around, you know, how do you you know, help those in need in a responsible way. And that was really hard because we just didn't come from that background. So I think what I've learned is, you know, you have to ask lots of questions. You'd be very curious. Uh, you admit when you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and you really look for people who are experts in these spaces. And so over time, the reason our quality of our shoes has gotten infinitely better than the first few years is we've hired amazing veterans that either worked at Nike or Vans or other companies that know how to make great shoes. And on the giving side, we've hired incredible leaders of nonprofits from all different you know sectors that are thinking deeply about our giving. And and so so those are the kind of tactical challenges. I think an internal challenge. You know, um, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, uh, told me once, and I got to spend some time with John when I lived in Austin. He's a great guy. He's an amazing human being. And he said that the consciousness of a business can only be raised as the consciousness of its leaders is raised. Amen. And, and, and I thought, man, and that was like 2012. I'd just gotten married. I'd had like real success as an entrepreneur. And I was probably, I hadn't done really much self-work at that point. And, and I really took that advice seriously because I said, if I'm going to continue to lead Tom's, it, 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 I need to work on myself more. And, wow. and, and, and that was a real, and it, and it turned out that working on myself more led to you know, better relationships with my family members and friends, definitely a better relationship with my wife. Um, and I think and as it relates to business, it, I have a lot more empathy, I think, uh, and a, a lot more emotional intelligence to our staff and to people we work with than I did before I started working on that. So I think of, of the challenges that I've faced um, in growing Tom's and evolving it, a lot of them have been met by me working on myself more than working on the business. Uh, thanks for saying that. Uh, I, it, one of my observations just in my own past my own experience is that a company is oftentimes a direct reflection of like the the psychological or emotional even like the spiritual state of, of its leadership right and if, if you're all jacked up <laughs> it seems like things just don't work right 
All right. So I'm happy that you went there because what did you do to work on yourself? Like what are the things that people listening like, yeah. like would, would want to know about that maybe they could work on themselves, whether or not they're leading a company or not? Sure. So uh, one of the first things I did is I went to this, um, this amazing retreat called the Hoffman Institute. And the Hoffman Institute um, is, uh, they have two facilities in the United States, one up in Napa and one in Connecticut. And, and what they really focus on is uh, these patterns that we develop uh, yeah. as, as young people um, as a result to gain the love of our parents. Right. And, and we either are um, emulating and mimicking p- certain patterns of our parents to gain their love and attention, or we're rebelling against to get their love and attention. But it all comes down to that kind of central pr- premise. But what happens is, is those patterns end up... Um, governing and ruling and dictating our life more than our own free will. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's a huge thing. Like when you've, you know, and, and the crazy thing about it is my wife went first um, and it took me a couple of years, even though I saw some really positive changes and benefits in her life because I had this like kind of idealized, you know, family relationship with my mom and my dad. I mean, we were kind of the Brady Bunch and we got along. My parents were married for 40 plus years. And I was like, God, I was given all these opportunities. They were so supportive of me. There was all this positive stuff. I can't imagine thinking that there's patterns in my life that are holding me back that were developed because of my parents. But what you find is some of the things that have led to your success today are actually holding you back to further evolving in the future. And I discovered a lot about myself, and I learned some amazing tools to stay connected to that and to keep myself um, from kind of going in the same cycles that was that was kind of dictating my my life and I think my connection to my um, to my really kind of my I don't want to say free will because I always felt like I had free will, but I was compulsively making decisions and acting certain ways. Because I was still living as a twelve-year-old versus <laughs> versus living as a forty-year-old, and 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 doing that work um, really has had a a huge difference in my business and in my relationships, and definitely in my marriage. Well, it takes a lot of courage to talk about that, uh, and I'm hoping that over the next few years that this will just become common knowledge. Yeah. And, and it, it's not like any of us chooses to rerun patterns from our childhood. They run before you have the chance to notice them. Sure. Uh, so they're sort of invisible. And, and every one of the, the my favorite entrepreneurs, like people who are building companies, uh, and but people they also want to spend time with, <laughs> they've all somehow chanced upon that knowledge. Like, you know, maybe I could work on that. And there's many different paths. Right. And, and that I think is what makes them fantastic leaders uh, versus, you know, the, there are leaders who are fear based and, you know, you crack the whip kind of people, but no one wants to hang out with them. No, no, <laughs> no. And I think also what happened for me is I became a lot less reactive. Yeah. You know, one of the cycles that I found in my business life that I'm happy to share, um, you know, that I came from this personal work was uh, what I would do is I would work incredibly hard, have total tunnel vision, you know, dedicate my entire life energy to the business and to, and to furthering the business. And then I'd be so exhausted and depleted 
uh, that I would almost resent the business yeah. for, for, for what I had given to it. And so then I would, luckily, because we had had success and I had great people around me, I would totally check out. Like, I would go somewhere for a month or two and just, like, no email, no phone. Like, I'm, I'm, this is Blake time. Like, I'd, like, claim my freedom back. And so then what would happen is after a month or two of being somewhere and totally checked out, I would start to feel guilty that I wasn't putting enough time to the business. <laughs> and so I'd come back into the company. Talk about disruptive founder. Wow. I'd come back into the company with like thinking I had to have the silver bullet to solve whatever the issue of the time was. And then the whole cycle would start again. And, and so now, um, you know, I take a lot of time off in the summers. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Wyoming with my family. But instead of like checking out like I would have done before I did this work, I actually work a couple hours every day. And so even though technically I'm on kind of summer time with a family, I'm staying engaged. I'm working with people. And then when I come back in September, it's not like a tidal wave is coming back. It's just like, oh, they see me more in the physical form instead of on Skype or on this robot on a stick that I use to go around the office. <laughs> you have called, one of those? Yeah. I do too. <laughs> it's amazing. Called Double. Do you use it? Oh, mine doesn't call Double. Yeah, it, Double's amazing. I'm forgetting uh, what the name Beam it, it, it called okay, a beam. mine's it's like, like a segue yeah. on a stick, and then it has like an iPad. With your face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's similar okay, idea. Same thing. <laughs> so I use that a lot in the summertime to stay in meetings and stay connected. But, the, but that was a really interesting thing of understanding that, you know, that kind of needing to be the savior, needing to be the center of attention led me to this thing where I was like all in and I, and I was just like 100% committed, and then I was all out versus a more constant connected you know role to the company and and now I feel I feel much you know it's just much more even and that has it has helped a lot of things not just in the business of Tom's but also just in my personal life and what brought that awareness to you was going through the Hoffman process yeah going through the Hoffman process because part of what you're doing is not only identifying patterns that are causing this compulsive behavior but also kind of more like what those patterns lead to in terms of cycles that ultimately leave you feeling depleted when I figured out the patterns that had driven a lot of my success in a not so positive way, I actually had a lot of guilt around like, good God, how could I have allowed myself to like go and act like an asshole all the time uh, without knowing it? Did you deal with any of that? You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I was doing that. Or was your self-forgiveness kind of built into that? I mean, I think the, um, the thing that was kind of the most interesting to me was this this pattern or this thing around idea or identity creation. You know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I was a really good tennis player and one of the better tennis players in the state and probably the best tennis player in my neighborhood. And, and so I quickly formed an identity as Blake, this great tennis player which was very different because I grew up in Texas where most guys were football players or basketball players. So I was already a little different because I played tennis. But then because I was a really good tennis player, it was, a, it was a sense of identity, right? And then that led through college until then me starting my first business. And then at 19, I became known as a young entrepreneur, you know? And so for, you know, for my, you know, my 20s, and even to my early 30s, I don't know when you stop being a young entrepreneur, just an entrepreneur. <laughs> I, I still curse that day. I really liked when people re- referenced me as a young entrepreneur. Um, you know, that was a huge part of my identity, right? Um, and then when I started Tom's, it was the social entrepreneur, you know? And it was like, wow, so this person is like redefining how business can play a role in 
in improving society and, and dealing with you know issues and and things that are, are are important beyond just making money. And so what I realized was I had been chasing, and it was really important for me to define to be have these really tightly defined identities that also led to a lot of um, attention. And and so I was comfortable when I had a lot of attention. And so one of the things that I didn't realize I didn't really like about myself was like. I I don't want to be the person that needs attention. Right. Like, like that's not a, like I've been in, at dinner parties with that person at a table and that person's obnoxious. And so if, <laughs> if, if, if I'm, if I'm doing things that are causing people to give me more attention and my, my patterns and my life is kind of being directed towards doing things that drive more attention my way, it just, it just didn't feel good. And so that was a really eye opening and liberating feeling. Cause now I mean, I still struggle with patterns, of of course, but I catch myself and I'm like, am I doing this because I really want to do this and this is my authentic self or am I just doing this to get attention? Because if I'm doing to get attention, I'm just the monkey there, you know, like <laughs> not in control of, 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 of the way I'm living. And it, you know, and it, and it has had an impact and it, and, it, and I think it makes me um, just more present, more aware in, in all aspects of my life. All right. Do you meditate? I do. I do. I, I, I wish I meditated more. Um, <laughs> I started doing TM about four years ago. Okay. So it's Transcendental Meditation for anyone listening who doesn't know what TM is. Um, I had tried several different types of meditation before that. And what I found about TM was this, its utter simplicity um, was effective for me. Um, and the idea of you know having a mantra that is kind of a sound um, feeling or vibration and, and allowing your mind to to go there um, versus like trying to control your mind to not think of things or to think of something or concentrate on something. For me, it was a much more calming form of meditation. And so the the TM kind of world would say meditate twice a day. I'm I'm doing pretty good if I get five mornings a week. Like if I get five out of seven mornings a week for 20 minutes, I feel like I'm in the meditative zone and it's having a positive impact on my life. As I think about the next two months and I'm going to stay home in the house and take a paternity leave with our new daughter coming, I'm curious to see what I, if I can get you know, once in the morning and once in the evening when the baby and mommy are sleeping. So um, I'm going to try to meditate more. That's one of my intentions for the next two months uh, and see if it feels different than my you know, five mornings a week right now. But, but I'm, for about four years now, I've been pretty consistent with five mornings a week. Nice. Now, I wish you luck on becoming a more advanced meditator as a brand new dad. <laughs> this is your second child. <laughs> I know. I'm. I'm. I'm always. You can't. I'm always optimistic and and usually naive. So we'll see. Um, when I decided to run an experiment uh, with a bulletproof diet when I was still testing things out, and I started that experiment the day my son, my second child, was born, because I knew that I wasn't going to get a full night's sleep for a long time. Like, so I'll sleep five hours or less per night by design, since I probably would have slept that little anyway. Uh, and then I'll like add a bunch of calories and look at what happens and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it, it was kind of funny because it, it slotted in really well. But I can't say that I advanced my meditation practice or that it was a particularly, I guess it was a productive time for me. And I was working and I started Bulletproof. But at the same time, it was it was sort of like, you know, there's, it's always disruptive, and part of meditation is 20 minutes of of no disruption, even though it feels like there's a lot of unpredictability. Uh, so I, I you you may manage that really well. In fact, I suspect you will. 
but let's talk about unpredictability. How do you deal, because that's a, a micro example, just because you're like, I wanted to meditate, I'm not sure. going to get to it. How do you deal with like bigger unpredictable things? What, what happens, like, like what happens to you emotionally uh, when, okay, I expected things to go this way, whether it's business-wise or personal-wise, and they just completely don't go that way? Like, like what is your in, inner response? How do you deal with that situation? It's interesting because I think it leads back a little bit to meditation, and I'll show you how I'll get there. Is that like I I feel that I am better capable and prepared to deal with unpredictability and just I even say things going not my way when I have certain things in my life that I do have control over. So, for instance, um, about two years ago when I was 39, I decided that I was going to get in the best shape of my life by the time I turned 40. And in up until that point for like the last decade of building Tom's, I was working crazy hours. I was not eating very well. And I definitely had lost kind of my athletic ability and fitness level that I once had when I was playing college tennis. And so not having control over that, I think, was creating anxiety around other things in my life. And then when things were further unpredictable, I didn't have something I could go back to to get that control or that predictability. So by by taking my diet and my fitness seriously and getting in the best shape of my life, which I've continued to be in since then for now almost a year and a half, it allows me to be more comfortable with unpredictability the rest of my things. I was like, I know I'm going to get my morning workout in and I'm going to eat healthy meals so I have sustained energy through the day. So when things don't go as I want, at least I have a little bit of sense of control of my schedule and of my time and of my personal well-being. Um, and so I think it just allows me, equips me to be more uh, open to things not going my way. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. I don't know if I explained that very I, well. I think I get it. You're basically saying I, I've got control of my body now. Therefore, at least I have that, even if I don't have control of something else. I, you still have that yeah. level of like, I don't know if it's anti-anxiety or just, just that level of calmness that comes from like, I've got something anyway. Exactly. And I think that's where it also goes back to meditation, where if you have a meditation practice, then you know that you're going to get at least 20 minutes a day of that's just for you your time, you know, now hopefully you choose the right time so you don't get interrupted. <laughs> but in theory, if you can find that time, then it, it gives you a sense of empowerment so that when things don't go your way or you do get interrupted, you feel like you already kind of checked off one of your needs. So it's, it's, it, and that, I found that really, it's funny. My wife and I are very different in our activity level needs. Like I need literally to burn energy. And mm -hmm. until I burn that energy, like I have like a sense of just kind of like, I'm revving, revving. And if you're around me, that can start to get annoying <laughs> and I can get annoyed because I haven't gotten that energy out. So we discovered in our relationship that like, she doesn't like to get up particularly early, and I don't mind getting up at 5, 5.30. So if I go and just crank a workout or a surf session in or a rock climbing in the summertime from like 6 to 8, even before our kids get up, I'm actually really pleasant and I'm really chill from like 8 to 11. We have breakfast. We nice. take the kids. You know, I was like, I was like, I've already taken care of something, and I've kind of expended energy. But if I haven't done that, and then I'm going into my day and, and I'm still having that kind of like, I need to get this out. And then all these things happen in my day that give me no control of my day. And I'm, then I can be, it, it, it can put me in a funk. It, it's really cool that you said like, that's what works for you. 
I see so many people are like, well, this person does that, so I'm going to go do it. Uh, and I know some people who are wired the way you are. And I know others who are like, if, if I had to do that every day, like I would hate my life. So how did you discover this worked for you versus some other thing that might not work for you? I mean, I think that that goes to, you know, a lot of what you've written about and headstrong and, and, and other podcasts that I've listened to that you've done is like, it's all about experimentation. Like no, just by testing. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's really by testing. I mean, and I think that like you do something for a week or two, how are you feeling? You do something and you know, like it don't just, I mean, it's great to get knowledge and, and lead by, and learn from other examples and to read books and listen to, I mean, I, I love information. I love new ideas, but ultimately it has to work for you. And so like, Something I've recently learned um, in, in my working out is I was overtraining. I was about to yeah. ask you that. Beautiful. So, yeah, <laughs> I got to a point to where I was actually feeling like I wasn't as vibrant and as excited for these morning workouts. Yeah. And I got to a point where I was like, I think I'm just working out too much. So I cut it back to like really just two hard sessions a week. And I'm really looking forward to those sessions now. I feel like I'm getting this, I'm keeping the same level of fitness, if not getting stronger. And I'm training half as much. So, so that's something that no one could have prescribed that to me. I had to be listening and in tune with my body and myself in order to know that and notice that. I think you just helped a lot of people by talking about that because I've seen this over and over with like high performing CEO types. I've done a lot of coaching, although lately with Bulletproof being where it is, I'm not doing as much coaching, but uh, I still do it like with neurofeedback stuff and all on occasion. And it's like, it seems like it's a guy thing mostly. And like, okay, I, I, I'm running a company, I'm doing well, and I'm going to be an Ironman triathlete, and I'm going to fly around the world, do all these things. And it's like, okay, recovery becomes the big variable, not how hard can you push yourself? Because like we're wired to push ourselves, especially when there's a mission, which, which you clearly have. Uh, so you recognize just, you felt it, you, did you measure heart rate variability or any of those things like that? Or or, or sex hormones, your testosterone levels drop, or you're just like, I don't have the, the zest I used to have. Yeah, and it was more just an intuitive feeling that okay. I, was, I wasn't I was fully recovered by the time I was going back into the gym or into the next workout. Or, our, you know, I was surfing too many days in a row in the morning. Even though is I, there such a thing? There it, it, it is. <laughs> you, just, you know, your shoulders get tired, you yeah. get exhausted, and, like, you're doing it out of habit and not out of literally listening to your body, where your body's saying, it's God, really, like, just to sit and have a nice cup of coffee and maybe read a book this morning, you know? And 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 I, it's funny, you know, one of the things that I've really been working on, going back to the personal development, is, like, just getting better at sitting. Like, <laughs> being really comfortable just sitting and, like, watching my son play in the yard and not feeling, like, the urge to do anything but just be sitting there. And that is... I think that is as challenging as some of the athletic pursuits I've had over the years. Well, well that's basically another form of meditation. Sure. Right? It, it's just, you know, practicing awareness. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I think that's challenging for almost every, uh, every CEO and just for a lot of people in general now, partly because of you know, Facebook and everything else, but you can always be doing something. And yeah, that's maybe an area where I'm capable of that, but like, I'm not sure that I would choose to do that given a choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least it's a choice versus an automatic behavior for you now because you're, you're realizing, okay, I, I feel the urge to do this, but I'm choosing to do something else. And then you feel like you've got the control there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it all goes back to like, if you're taking care of yourself, if you're doing, you know, if you're getting these basic kind of checklist of things that allow you to, you know, kind of live with the most energy and awareness, then, then these things are easier to do. And then when your world starts spinning out of control and you don't feel like you have that control, then it's harder to be 
you know, present and, and to sit and to do these things. So did you hire like a, a personal trainer and a personal chef and a nutritionist and a massage therapist and, you know, like, like an, an army and entourage of people to like help you get in the best shape of your life? Like, how did you go about doing that? No, I, I've actually just been slowly but surely adding those people into my life. But no, I, I originally was just really working with a trainer. I mean, I think okay. that was the main thing is like having having the knowledge that I was getting the most out of the amount of time that I had to commit to that. I think from a from a diet standpoint, it was really just you know mainly cutting out sugar and and a lot of senseless carbs. Okay, like for me that was I mean once again everyone's different, but um, for me it was recognizing that you know by cutting out a lot of kind of the senseless carbs um, and and also most all sugar, um, you know the weight and the body fat just fell off. Nice, uh, that seems to work for a lot of people, but there's some people who seem to need their carbs, right? Absolutely. So this is another case of, you know, don't do what worked for me, do what works for you. Absolutely. All right. Good, good advice. Now, let's talk a little bit about your sense of mission, because that's something that really struck me when we first met. Like you, you genuinely love what you're doing. Why did you pick this mission? It's interesting. Uh, people ask me all the time, like there's all these problems in the world. How how did you decide that you wanted to help give kids shoes? And I'm always say like, I did not choose shoes. I feel like shoes kind of chose me in a way because I was down in Argentina and I wasn't looking to start a nonprofit. I wasn't looking to start a social enterprise. I wasn't looking to do anything like that. I was just on vacation, and you know, noticed that there were lots of kids in the street that weren't in school that didn't have shoes and met some people that were working at a nonprofit that were helping get kids shoes. And like there was a serendipitous, you know, series of events that led to this, what seemed like a very simple idea there is like, man, there's a lot of people in the world that literally don't have shoes that need them. And there's a lot of people in the world buying shoes every day because they just want them. So if you can take what someone wants and provide with someone some of the needs, like that would be a really cool value exchange in the world of business. And this is 2006 when this was not happening. And and so what I got excited about and and kind of what became Tom's was just kind of like that kind of, I think it was that rebellious spirit in me of wanting to do something different than just starting another business. And so I got very excited about using business to help people and at the same time create a successful business. And so um, the mission of Tom's of what we call using business to improve lives and the one for one model of, you know, buy a pair of our shoes and we give a pair, you know, that very much came out of um, a very simple idea and observation. Um, and it wasn't like a big elaborate you know, kind of plan or I didn't have any background in like public health or, you know, or, or I definitely hadn't been involved in charities in the, you know, before. So, um, so it really was something that very organically grew out of, uh, a series of observations and kind of pieces that I put together. Now, having said that, as Tom started to grow, as other companies started to emulate our one for one model, um, as I got kind of put on this pedestal of like, social entrepreneur and and that was kind of category was kind of being defined by some of the actions that I was taking or the book I wrote or whatever then I started to understand this idea of mission on a much more kind of macro standpoint of like okay I've been given these gifts 
Um, and by using these entrepreneurial gifts, I can not only improve the lives of people who I will never meet, but I also can hopefully influence a lot of the people that I do meet or do get to listen to me speaking at a conference or an article that I've written. And if those people take that information and start businesses that improve people's lives, then the impact is exponential. And so that what kind of gets me most excited today is not just the work that we're doing as Tom's, but, but what I can help uh, empower, inspire, et cetera, other entrepreneurs to do because I truly believe that business can be a force for good. And the more that we think of it that way, the more successful the business is because there's all these values to having uh, a business that's led by a mission from a, from, a, from a profit perspective and from an employee retention perspective and a customer loyalty perspective. But also that this, this really can be uh, the answer to many of the social injustices and issues that we face you know, in modern times. So you, you sort of found it and it just it resonated with you and, and you went with it. And lately, though, it seems in fact, not just it seems you've announced every year you're picking a new cause. Yeah. How do you go about picking a new cause to decide it's going to have the most impact? So this is a great uh, example of being a, a much more, I would say, aware, flexible entrepreneur than I used to be. So I announced that back in 2000 and. I want to say 13 or 14. So we had done shoes. We had done eyewear where every time we sold a pair of sunglasses or prescription glasses, we uh, either paid for an eye surgery or gave someone prescription glasses. Um, Then we launched a coffee company uh, where we would provide clean water when the coffee that we were sold. And then the last product we did was bags, and we had this safe birth kit that we would deliver to women who were giving birth in their homes. That is the coolest thing ever, by the way. I love that you did that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and it was it was a it, and it was so fun because when we were when we we knew that there was a an opportunity to sell bags when you sell shoes and eyewear. It's like an accessory yeah. company. It made sense from a business perspective. We couldn't figure out what's the give. And then when we ran across this work that the UN workers were doing with delivering these safe birth kits, which really helped reduce infant mortality by a huge percent because it provided just the basic you know, needs from a hygiene perspective, um, it was really beautiful. And so we did these series of products, and I was raged to keep on doing them. Uh, and then we brought in a CEO of Tom's, and I sold half the company uh, to a private equity firm and brought on a partner. And as we looked at like, okay, let's stop for a second, just look at the Tom's business. Um, you know, both our CEO and my new partner said, you know, I actually think we can do more impact by focusing on <laughs> less things. And as an entrepreneur and as someone I know yourself as kind of an inventor like me, like that, that could have gone really bad. Yeah. But instead, because I had done some work on myself and I was in a I was in a place where I had more awareness of my strengths and weaknesses. I said, okay, I'm going to be curious about this. So why? And so I asked a lot of questions and ultimately they were able to convince me, you know, overwhelmingly convince me like, let's really focus on our shoes, our eyewear, our coffee, our bags, and let's not try to launch something new every year because that puts so much strain on the organization that we're not able to fully uh, capitalize on the products and the categories we're in. And it confuses our customer because they haven't even got fully into the new product yet. And so we changed that uh, strategy two years ago, and it's been great. We've seen growth in all these other categories, um, and I think it's allowed us to operate with more excellence here in the building. 
Um, and frankly, I feel less pressure because I don't have to come up with something new every year. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like it's it's actually worked out quite well. Um, but it was definitely not the path I would have taken if I was just left on my own. Um, so so it, it really. Um, I think it's been a good example for the people who've been with me a long time to see how I've evolved as a leader and 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 open to other ways of of approaching the growth of our business. It, the focus thing is is I think a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurial types. I'm getting this from my product team all the time. I'm like, let's do this. Like people will love it. It'll it'll change people's lives. And, and they're like, maybe, but not now because if we do that, we're not going to keep doing what we're doing. You know, we're not going to launch the latest cold brew or whatever, like, like there are limits. I'm like, well, can we just hire more people? Yeah. Uh, you know, we raise venture money. Yeah. Uh, but the, the truth is, is that even if you do all those things, there's the customer confusion. And also you can only scale a company at a certain speed. You hire new people, then you lose the culture. If you, you know, triple the size of the company in three months, like how, how would you do that? All right. So, so your own path of awareness led you to be cool with that, that, conversation saying all right i said we were going to do one of these every year and now i'm i'm changing that decision and now we're going to stick with the ones we've got and we're going to do those really well and maybe do something later absolutely and and you know i think it's and i was very vocal in the media about that kind of proclamation of like this is what we're about we're the one for one company one new product every year like and so to kind of go back and like yeah that was an idea and we decided to change our plan like it takes a, a level of humility and openness um, but I think with each of these things, which I think is a lot of the theme of this of this of this discussion, is you know goes back to what John Mackey said: like raise the consciousness of the leaders, yeah. and the business consciousness goes up too. How do you deal with critics? Man, I, I that's a, a, a um, that's something that I definitely has been a journey for me because um, <laughs> I I did not used to deal with them very well, and I felt. Um, very, um, I took it very personally yeah. uh, at first, especially because in the early days when we first had, you know, we started 2006, you know, the business really started growing 2008, 9, 10. I would say 2011 was when we started really getting criticized. And it was crazy to me because we were, we were doing so much more and, and, and donating a huge percentage of our revenue. Um, you know, to, to trying to make the world a better place and improve people's lives. And then we'd have people talking about how, you know, that, you know, our, our, our giving shoes were just only, you know, creating, you know, dependency issues in developing countries or, you know, that we, you know, we weren't creating enough jobs in the countries and we were just giving aid. And, and, and some of the criticism, in essence, from a purely intellectual level is correct. But in a practical level is like, Okay, you show me how you can make a factory in Haiti overnight. Like it just doesn't happen. Like they don't make shoes there. Like right. they don't have the raw materials. They don't have but like it's easy to lob in this criticism from somewhere in cyberspace that I would take super personally. Um Did you just say cyberspace? Yeah. It's because we're over forty, man. I understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, um I love that. But no, but that's you know, that's where it, you know it comes from. And uh and so so I, I, I would say like two thousand 10, 11, maybe even a 12, I would, I would respond um, by taking it very personally, being kind of hurt. Uh, yeah. And then I recognize that you can learn, at least thematically, you can really learn from critics. So I started really understanding, like, okay, where are 
where is most of the criticism coming from with our model? Because it's a, it's a very small percentage of people, but they're very loud. Yeah. Um, and so what are they, what, what, what are they most loud about? And is there anything that we can do as a business to address it? And the area that we ultimately really do, dug into was in job creation. You know, that like, you know, that, that I'm an entrepreneur. I love helping create more entrepreneurs. And so if there was a way to use our supply chain and our business model to do more local manufacturing in the countries that we're giving, then I was all in philosophically, right. intellectually. But then in practicality, could we do it? And so we set a goal of, 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 of making 30% of all of our giving shoes within three years in the countries that we sell them in. And we achieved the goal. So I think it's over 40% today. And we make shoes in Kenya and make shoes in Ethiopia and make shoes in India. We used to make shoes in Haiti, but that ultimately didn't work out. We still do design of shoes in Haiti and do a lot of art around the shoes in Haiti, but not the actual physical manufacturing. Um, and, and it was something to where once we stopped trying to fight the critics or defend our position and we're open into listening to it, that it helped kind of grow our business and it helped us, you know, with an insight around what our customers were caring the most about. And that was seeing that companies were helping in the job creation space in dealing with poverty and not just in the aid space. So, so I've noticed that there are sort of two types of critics out there. They're the critics who are like, I don't like this because, and then they list things that they don't like, th things that they think should be changed, and they give you a reason. And then there's another kind of critic that says, you know, you're a, insert a bunch of insults here because, and maybe they're the same points, maybe they're not the other points. Do you see a difference between those two types, and do you treat them differently from a business perspective? I think the first type is more um, constructive. Because it's like, I don't like this because, and there's a list of reasons, and you can disagree and argue and, and debate them. When someone says, I don't like you because, then I think it's more of a personal attack, and I don't know really where that leads to. Yeah. Because we are who we are, and none of us are perfect, and 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 you don't even know me really <laughs> you know you, you don't like the, the the media version of me right. you know so um so those i think i i and, and i think those are easier just to dismiss and to ignore because you know they're not they're just not intellectually stimulating at all you know there's nothing to debate right so i guess that's the way i look at it got it so those those don't push your buttons at all because you're not anymore like i mean when yeah. i was younger they of course they did yeah, yeah same here like there's a certain <laughs> point where you're like okay <laughs> it, it's all going back to seventh grade you know those patterns we talked about before yep I, I feel like it's mostly people who are heavily bullied they're like i'm gonna get even now i'm 50 you're like all right <laughs> uh, so that's how you deal with critics and how you make your decision making how do you keep uh, your culture the the stuff you work so hard to build in the company now that you have a ceo now that you've sold you know half the company to a pe firm like what are the actions that you do to to keep like your energy in the company well i i'm really blessed because unlike you know some entrepreneurs i mean you hear horror stories um with both private equity and ceos i have a ceo that i feel is like the greatest partner i've ever had like i mean feel so so lucky in that we both have different skill sets. Uh, we complement each other well. We have a ton of respect, which I think is the number one thing yeah. you must have. 
Um, and we also speak very openly to each other when we disagree in a very constructive way. So that relationship is really great. And the same thing with my, my partners uh, at Bain Capital, which is a P firm that is my partner, is, you know, we don't always agree on things as like what, how many products we should launch every year. But, you know, we really are solution oriented and we both have the, we had the macro vision absolutely shared. And that is to use business to improve lives, to continue to grow Tom's into a highly profitable business that also helps a ton of people. And when you kind of agree on the big things, the little things kind of work themselves out. Um, so, yeah, so I think that, you know, I'm in a situation where uh, I have really great support around me. Now, how do you keep the culture? I think culture is such an interesting thing. And what I've found is, there's a lot of things you can do that you think help culture. And there's some really surface things that I kind of have fallen into the traps of thinking like, Oh, we're going to have happy hour every Friday, or we're going to do, you know, we're going to put a gym in and, and offer wellness classes. Those are perks. Those aren't culture. Yeah. And culture actually is healthiest when you just have a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish and the vision matters to people. Like, like actually, <laughs> the best way to have culture is to like have a really clear strategy that's working. <laughs> you know, because people feel really good when they're coming to work every day, and it's clear what they need to accomplish, and they're giving the tools and the empowerment to do so, and they're going and they're kicking ass. Like, they love their jobs. Yeah. They think yeah. culture is amazing. The minute that stuff isn't clear, and we've had many times at Tom's that's clear, and I guarantee right now there's probably, you know, I don't know, 10, 15% of our staff that say it's not clear for sure. So, so it's never perfect. But, but that to me is what culture is. Culture actually is everyone on, on with a shared vision, working hard and feeling empowered to do so and accomplishing whatever it is your company is accomplishing, whether it's mission-based or not. Like I think you can have great culture and, and probably be an evil company <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, because everyone is there for the same reason to create evil. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, you know, so, but, but it's really interesting. I think I've learned a lot of things you think are increasing or improving your culture are these kind of surface things that sound fun and that you do. And, and yeah, they're nice perks, but unless the strategy is clear and the empowerment is there, none of those things will make up for the lack of culture that, that, that you could have. Nice. Uh, by the way, if, if you're listening to this, you can tell that I'm picking Blake's mind about this stuff because I'm an entrepreneur who hasn't done as much as he has. So you can see I'm getting my little lessons here right now. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> Whatever can help. People, have, I've gotten so many people helping me, that's for sure. It's uh, it, it's pretty amazing how people step up to help when they, when they think you're doing good stuff. Now, we're coming up on the end of the show, and I'm looking forward to asking you the question I've asked every guest on the show, which is that if someone came to you tomorrow, Blake, and they said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, you know, not just my work, not just sports, you know, but just my whole life, what are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for them? Mm, it's such a good question. Okay, so the first thing is, is I would say, create a very simple daily gratitude practice like hands down spending five minutes in the morning five minutes in the evening writing in a journal all the things you're grateful for is probably the most effective thing i've done to manage my stress level my clarity of thought my energy uh my my attitude everything like it just there's something i don't know if it's proven in science or not but like 
when you're grateful, it's really hard to be negative or depressed yeah. or or whatever you want to you want to add in there. So we can see it in your brainwaves. Like it, gratitude's real, yeah. Yeah. So gratitude is super real, um, and 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 I think in terms of high performing, you find people who are high performers, they're grateful for people, and so and the more opportunities through your day to express gratitude to others. The more oxytocin is created, the more the more alive you feel. So that's that's number one. Number two is drink more water. Like <laughs> I, it sounds super simple, but uh, in this last year, I have really made it a practice to drink a ton of water. Um, make sure you get some Himalayan sea salt in there as well. So there's some electrolytes because um, you can drink too much water. Oh, yeah. Um, but find out what the right amount for you is. Once again, that theme is going through this show. But, you know, just drinking water all day long, now you will have to pee more, and, and that has some inconvenience, especially if you have a long commute. But, um, but, but I really have found that it's increased my energy level in a huge way. Nice. I feel that, like, everything is working better in my body, um, and it's such a simple thing. But it's a habit that you have to create. Like, it takes a while. Like, you have to get used to, like, carrying that Nalgene bottle everywhere you go, starting every meeting with offering people water, filling your water up. Like, I found that this has not been a habit that just, just happened automatically, but it has taken some work. But now that I think it's fully ingrained, it, I'm definitely performing uh, better at kind of every aspect nice. of my life by, by, simply, uh, by simply drinking water. Okay, so those are two that just immediately popped to mind. Uh, a third one, oh, man, I'm trying to think. Um, you know, I, I think the third one would be is um, setting goals but really publicly announcing them so you have accountability. Nice. You know, I think a lot of people set goals, and I used to write goals in my journals all the time, but I think I started accomplishing my goals, and some people call this manifestation, right? And I started manifesting things that I wanted to have half my life. The more I was um, not afraid of sharing them with loved ones on social media, uh, you know, with my coworkers, because once I shared them, the likelihood of me just sticking to it went up exponentially, <laughs> right? Because people would ask me about it. How are you doing on that goal? So like when I said, I'm going to get in the best shape of my life time I turned 40, I told every single person that. Like if, if you went to dinner with me, like, what have you been up to? Well, guess what? I'm going to get in the best shape of my life by the time I turn 40. You know, if I was, you know... Connect, you know, you know, reconnecting with someone I hadn't seen in a while. What have you been up to? Well, I'm doing this. Like, I just, I just kept telling people that, and then enough people kept asking, "Well, how's it going? Is it working? What are you doing?" And then it just became a part of of my identity in a sense, and it led me to actually achieve it. And I think that I think that there is a lot of power in the personal accountability. And frankly, I think this is a positive of social media. Is it's very easy to get people to track your progress and to keep you accountable when you say you're going to do something when to all your friends and followers online. So uh, I think in terms of really looking at performance, um, you know, being grateful, drinking water, and then, you know, setting goals publicly is, is a great way to, to perform better. So you're basically outsourcing accountability for your goals. Yeah, it's super important. <laughs> or crowdsourcing, I yeah, guess. Is what... Crowdsourcing probably more than outsourcing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's uh, cool. I don't think that's an answer I've heard before either, which is kind of cool. Good. Uh, you might be the second person to say drink water, which is kind of cool too. So pretty unusual stuff. 
Blake, it's been a great pleasure to have you on Bulletproof Radio, and thanks for having me here at Tom's headquarters. Great. Thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate it. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Go out and pick up a pair of Tom shoes. And when you do that, another person somewhere who really needs shoes is going to get a pair. And I think that's awesome. Have an awesome day. If you like this episode, you know what to do. Besides getting some Tom shoes, head on over to iTunes. Go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes and leave a review. You just heard gratitude, one of those things you can do. When you leave a review for this, it's a way of expressing gratitude. So you win and other people who find the show also win. So thanks for taking it the maybe 20 seconds to do that. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.